Well, good morning, everyone. It's, uh, as Andrew said, it's, it's good to finally see that, that break in the weather that reminds us that winter isn't going to last forever and ever. Um, yeah, that, it, it was time. It was time. Um, and with that transition kind of comes a, a transition in kind of the, the cycle of the church seasons as well. I know not all of us kind of celebrate or I guess you'd say observe Lent in the traditional way of like fasting from something, but some people choose to do that and it can be a, a very worthwhile uh, endeavor. It's, we'll be exploring that a little bit. In any case, we've, got, we've started a new sermon series that we're calling Living Sacrifices. It was based on the Apostle Paul's words to uh, the Romans in chapter 12 of that book uh, to present ourselves as living sacrifices. And what does that mean? And today we're going to start that by looking at a text uh, from the words of Jesus and what it looks like to practice self-denial. So perhaps you've heard of uh, the marshmallow test. Has anyone heard of the marshmallow test? or more properly, the the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. This is a series of experiments that was done in the late 60s and early 70s at Stanford University. And essentially, it went like this. They'd get a small child. They did this with lots of little kids. They'd get a little kid, and they'd have them in the, the experimenter room. And usually, these are like the things with the mirrored glass, so the experimenter can see the kids, but the kid doesn't know they're being watched. And they'd give them a marshmallow, and they'd put it on the table in front of them, and they'd say, I'm going to leave the room for 10 or 15 minutes, and you can choose either to eat this marshmallow while I'm gone, or if you don't eat the marshmallow, I'll give you two marshmallows when I return. Something like that. They did various types of variations on this experiment. So the experimenter would leave and the child would be left there to contemplate her little or his little choice. Of course, some didn't care much about the possibility of future marshmallows. And as soon as the experimenter turned his back, they gobbled down the mallow that they had in front of them. Others, enticed by the promise of future tasty marshmallows, would struggle through and like try different strategies to avoid eating the marshmallow they already had. You know, some would try to hide it somewhere where they couldn't see it. Others would, you know, get up and walk around and try to avoid it. They'd try all kinds of things and some would eventually break down and nevertheless eat the marshmallow and others would succeed and be rewarded with a second marshmallow once the experimenter returned after they had successfully resisted the temptation. Now from this, all kinds of conclusions were drawn about self-control and self-denial and how that works and delayed gratification and whether this test could then predict future life outcomes. And since then, experimenters have been rerunning different versions of this and arguing about, is it, is it whether you can resist temptation of marshmallows or is it socioeconomic status? All kinds of things. We don't need to get kind of into all of that today. What I do want us to think about is the fact that life frequently presents us with choices like this. Either we can indulge in something now or we can put that off for the possibility of of something better later on. At a very basic level, this is what anything that you'd call a sacrifice kind of boils down to. This is what led us to develop agriculture, essentially. Either I can eat the grain that I have now, or I can save some of the grain to plant next spring. If I eat the grain now, 
I'll be full, but I might starve next year. If I save the grain, I might go hungry for a season, but if I make it through, I'll be able to multiply the amount of grain I have by planting it and harvesting it. This is, this is the very basic truth Jesus was using in that earlier passage we read, and he was drawing a spiritual conclusion from that, right? If you put the seed into the ground, you destroy the seed you have, but it bears a crop. And Jesus was talking about that in terms of what he was going to accomplish by laying down his life. And of course, a, a basic simple truth like that could be, could be turned into a religious system and, and ritualized even. And the book of Leviticus provides us with the sacrificial system that the Lord ordained for Israel. But this sort of thing was very common across many cultures in the ancient world. Making a sacrifice, whether of grain or whether of an animal, it was very common. People, people would bring their sacrifices. And let's remember that in the ancient world, grain and livestock were the currency of the day. That's how you measured what wealth you had in terms of how much grain you had and how many sheep and cattle you had. That's how much wealth you had. So bringing a sacrifice meant bringing something of great value to you and giving it over to the Lord. And there were different kinds of sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. We tend to think kind of just in terms of blood sacrifices for guilt or for sin and burnt offerings. But there are many types of sacrifices. Some of them uh, were the whole animal was burned. Its blood was offered and then the animal was totally put in the fire and consumed. But many of the sacrifices, uh, it was just a token portion of the animal's blood that was offered on the altar and some of the meat or the fat, but a lot of the rest of it was saved to be eaten in kind of a ritual meal. And some of those were about restoring fellowship uh, with your neighbor where maybe there, there was uh, strife or where you had sinned against your neighbor and this was used to to reconcile and there were different offerings of meat and grain that were used in these different ways and some offerings were even basically just collected in order to share with those who had need the tithe in ancient Israel was like that however in all of them the, the same basic thing is at play you bring something that is of great value to you and you give it up you give it over for the purpose of obtaining something that's more important than just what you have now, whether that's uh, freedom from the guilt of your sins or restoration in your relationship with God or with your neighbor. You bring something of value, you give it up, you sacrifice it, and in hopes of obtaining something that is of greater good to you in the long run. Now, this can be almost a bottomless rabbit hole to go down, but it's important to think about as we think about a new sermon series that we're calling Living Sacrifices. And as I said, you'll recognize that. It's taken from Romans chapter 12, the first couple verses, where the Apostle Paul urges followers of Christ to present their bodies as living sacrifices. It's a well-known verse. Did anyone memorize that verse at some point in their life? A few hands going up. Younger folks, older folks too. It's a common one in Awana or Sunday school or any scripture memory program. Many of us will have this verse underlined in our Bibles. But what, do, what does it actually mean? What does it mean to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? Because the point of a lot of sacrifices was the animal was killed or the grain or the, the animal's flesh was burned up. So we're going to look at this. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? And what, in what sense do we still have a sacrifice that we need to make. Our church, for the last number of years, has 
chosen to observe the season of Lent in some way. And it isn't because we believe that this is a magic formula that if you give up cake or coffee or Facebook or some other thing that that earns you credit or status with God or brownie points. It's not because we're slavishly devoted to structures and traditions and rituals, but it is because, as Andrew said earlier, we believe that there's value in taking some time each year to set that aside as a season of self-examination and maybe to intensify our discipleship before the Lord in some way and, and repent of our sins and seek what he has for us in terms of obedience. But to get back to the point, what does this actually mean? What does it look like? First of all, we need to be clear. Jesus offered the perfect once and for all sacrifice for our sins. We no longer need to present the blood sacrifice of an animal or or anything else of ultimate value as a substitute for ourselves to atone for our sins. That's one of the major points of the book of Hebrews. The writer kind of goes over and over and approaches that from every way imaginable to say we don't need to offer blood sacrifices for our sins anymore. This might be an oversimplification, but I think it's helpful. We don't need to make what you might call capital S sacrifices to atone for our sins. The Lord Jesus presented the perfect sacrifice once and for all, for all time, sufficient to atone for our sins. But there are still, I would say, maybe small s sacrifices that we are called to make for the sake of obedience. Not because we're compelling the grace of God or twisting his arm or if we show how holy we are, then that compels him to respond. That's not how it works. But in terms of obedience, in terms of putting his commands and his requirements ahead of our own will and our own desires and the things that we would rather have. And being willing to trust that in so doing, he has better and greater things for us than if we just stubbornly cling on to what we think is best for us and what we have now and selfishly hold it. You see what I'm getting at here? I hope that we can understand this better as our sermon series goes on. And I hope that we're not, we're not in a place where we're so afraid of legalism that we forsake following what the Lord would have for us because we're afraid of, oh, that's legalism. You've probably heard me say before, and I will continue to say it, it's not legalism to get to the root of something that's actually poisoning your soul or preventing you from following God faithfully. That's discipleship. That's common sense discipleship. So let's look at a scripture today where Jesus lays out some pretty rigorous demands for what it means to be his disciple. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 13, or sorry, chapter 16, Verse 13, and if we would stand as we typically do for the the hearing from God's word in our sermon text. So Matthew 16, verse 13. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. Message today is mainly on the latter part of this, this passage, but we'll read a little bit of a lengthier passage for the sake of context. Beginning at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done." Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word. Let me have a seat. So, some pretty, some pretty uh, hardcore, you might say, demands for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is a famous saying of Jesus. Uh, There's a few places where he mentions carrying his cross, but this more in-depth one is recorded by both Matthew and Luke. And Luke, you may remember, famously adds the word carry your cross daily to to the words of Jesus here. But the context and the the grammar of Matthew, uh, we can kind of infer it from there as well. They're They're not saying opposite things. This passage is in three units. As I mentioned, I want to focus mainly on that last one. But there is, there are, There's at least one important thing I think we can get from those first two units. Um, The disciples and Jesus' conversation about who he is, and then Jesus telling them that he's going to have to go and suffer. So what is it we can learn from this? I think what we need to learn from this is that we can know the right words to say about Jesus and still totally miss the point. Or to put it another way, Jesus will always have to correct our faulty understandings or our misunderstandings of who he is. So Jesus gets the disciples going as, as to who he is. He asks people, or he asks them, who do people say that I am? And, and the disciples report various answers. Uh, some people are saying he's just John the Baptist because ever since Jesus came on the scene, John's been kind of mysteriously absent and it's kind of that, have we ever seen Jesus and John the Baptist in the same place since that one day at the Jordan? Maybe he's just John the Baptist 2.0 or something. That's one opinion. There's another opinion. Maybe he's actually Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the ancient prophets of Israel, these mighty men of God, and he's come back from the dead and, and he's around again. Kind of a weirder idea, but that's what people were saying. And Jesus pushes them a little further, though. Do you guys believe those stories? Like, what do you actually think? Who do you actually say I am? And, and of course, Peter, always the first one to say something, and he's always kind of the spokesman for the rest of the apostles. Oh, he says, you, you are Messiah. You are the Christ. 
Correct answer. Sort of. Not really. Right title, but as we'll see, wrong understanding of what that word actually means. Because from what follows, we realize that Peter, and presumably the rest of the disciples, have understood the the term Messiah, or Christ, along the lines of, of political and possibly religious deliverer. Messiah would restore Israel to greatness. Messiah would purify the worship of the Lord. And and hopefully Messiah would do something about Roman occupation. Maybe Messiah would even crush Rome and restore Israel to greatness. And Jesus has to tell them, no guys, actually that's not how it's going to work. Rome is going to crush Messiah, not the other way around. He doesn't get quite that explicit in this passage. He gets more explicit as he tries to explain this to his disciples. But here at least, he does tell them that he's going to go up to Jerusalem. He's going to be delivered up to suffering and even to death. And, and Peter's like, no way, man. This is not going to happen. This is not right, Jesus. We are often so critical of the disciples for just not getting it. We think... Peter, how can you be so inspired? Jesus even said, you didn't come up with this on your own. This is you being sensitive to to the Father's instruction that's revealed this to you. How can you be so sensitive one moment and then you just completely miss the point right away again? How can you know such truths in the words but not in the understanding? But I think we have to be careful here. Because I think we frequently do the same thing. We can know the right words to say about Jesus. Jesus is is my personal Lord and Savior. Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again for my justification. We confess that in baptism, for instance. We say, yes, that's true. We sign off on that, on a statement of faith somewhere, etc. But then in our day-to-day lives, we can live in such a way that, well, we understand Jesus kind of more just like a life coach, or a, or a therapist than our Savior or our Lord. We might not make the exact same mistake as Peter did, but I think we make the same kind of mistake more frequently than we might like to admit. Right? Substituting our own understanding or even a more culturally determined understanding of what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, who he is and what he does. So here's where the stakes get even higher. Here's one way to know whether we have a proper understanding of Jesus or if we've just substituted our own ideas. A proper understanding of Jesus requires that we actually do something about it. If we properly understand Jesus, it can't just stay at the level of words or a confession that isn't backed up by something, that doesn't change the way we live fundamentally at a deep level. So first, your understanding of who Jesus is should actually lead to following him. Not just liking him, not just kind of having favorable thoughts about him or agreeing with theological statements or constructions. Not just kind of keeping him on retainer so he's around when you need him should you run into something that's too difficult for you to handle on your own. You see the progression of the logic in this passage. Who do people say I am? Okay, who do you say I am? That's not quite right. Here's what Messiah is actually all about. Are you still willing to follow? Okay, here's what that's going to look like if you want to follow Jesus. Second, and this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time, following Jesus is not primarily about having what's comfortable or agreeable or just getting what we want all the time. As Jesus says here, 
It could be the exact opposite. It, it's, it could very well be, it will be, about what we're titling this, this sermon series. It could be about sacrifice. Jesus says, deny yourself, lose your life, take up your cross. So let's try to break this down, because over the centuries, it seems that the church has gotten this wrong in quite a variety of ways. We seem to have people in our own day who are convinced that following Jesus isn't about laying down your life, but rather, rather it's, it's more about comfort and achieving success as the world defines it. We have people who think, on the other hand, though, that the point of Christianity is just to be as miserable as you possibly can, and that somehow if you're completely miserable, the more miserable you can make yourself, that then God will be pleased with you, and that will make you holy. I think these are errors at the opposite ends of the spectrum that we'll need to examine some. I'm sure many of you will have heard that famous quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And we know that was actually the case for this man. His stance against Nazi Germany did actually cost him his life. He was hanged uh, for his faith and for, among other things, opposing the Third Reich. And all the commentators on this passage will point out that that's exactly what carrying your cross means. The cross in the first century in Jesus' context was not a religious symbol that you wore around your neck on a little chain, worthwhile as that can be in our own day. If the cross was a symbol of anything in Jesus' time, it was a symbol of the might of imperial Rome to put down rebellions and punish traitors and make an example, a brutal one, of anybody who dared to step out of line. The cross was what kept the peace of Rome going because they just killed anybody that got in their way. So carrying your cross didn't mean wearing it around your neck as an ornament. It meant carrying the cross out of town to the place of execution because that was a symbol of being a condemned criminal. It meant going to your execution. And even more, moreover, it meant going to a shameful and painful and public execution as a rebel or a traitor. This punishment was reserved for the enemies of Rome and the lowest of the low. A Roman citizen could not be crucified. It was that terrible. And so many of us will then ask, well, what does this mean for me? I, I, it's unlikely that this can be interpreted in a literal way for most of us, though there have been Christians throughout the ages that it has cost them their life to follow Jesus. There are Christians in other parts of the world even now that are following Jesus at the risk of being put to death. But what do we do with this here? Well, here are some responses we can make. The, the opposite ends of the spectrum as I've kind of alluded to already. We can deny this call. We can just kind of, well, we wouldn't do the thing where you actually take the scissors to the page and cut it out actually from our Bible, but we can do that mentally, right? We just consign this to, this was a cultural thing, this was a long time ago, and we do enough kind of hermeneutical gymnastics and we just ignore it, basically. Or we actually actively uh, deny it, we can convince ourselves that the goals of Christianity are much the same as our surrounding culture. Success, wealth, health, comfort, etc. And if you're struggling in any of these areas, you just speak some words of victory over that situation. Be assured that the Lord will bless you if you have enough faith and if you send in your $20. Time and again, these sorts of ministries have been shown to be shams and frauds just taking people's money, and yet they still seem to keep gaining a following somehow. 
So there's, there's that response to this, to say, no, no, this isn't about suffering. This is about, just forget about that suffering stuff. And then, as I said, you've got people on the other end of the extremes that kind of fanaticize the call and try to make discipleship about punishing yourself as much as possible. To see how much suffering we can impose on ourselves. If, if we're not following Jesus at the risk of our life, we'll do something about that to make sure that we do suffer. And you can kind of measure your spirituality by how much suffering you are willing to impose on yourself and be more extreme than anybody else. Now, this is certainly less common in our culture now, but it was in many places and times kind of the dominant form of how you would follow this passage throughout the history of the church. We see it frequently in different strains of the monastic tradition, unfortunately, and, and even in some of the, the, on the Protestant side of Christianity, some of the Puritans started to go down this road as well. And Christianity was just about making yourself miserable and suffering, etc. It shows up in a lot of ways, but in many cases, it's kind of rooted in Gnostic or Neoplatonic ideas where they see physical matter and the human body as evil and wicked and spiritual and immaterial as good. And so you just, you punish the body and you try to have as little to do with physical things as possible. But that's, that's also to seriously misunderstand Jesus. He turned water into wine. He miraculously fed people. He always seemed to be dining at somebody's house to the point that people accused him of being a glutton and to use that delightful King James word, a wine-bibber. Um, we should bring some of these words back. Right? Jesus wasn't about being miserable all the time, though he did call people to be willing to sacrifice. So we've got two wrong extremes. What else is there? Well, we can tame the call down somewhat. It's kind of another mistake we make. We, we kind of talk about carrying our cross and in terms of putting up with minor irritations and inconveniences, small health concerns, an annoying boss, the neighbor whose dog poops in your yard, living where the air hurts your face four or five months of the year. Or if we're really spiritual, then we can talk about giving up some token luxuries for a season of the year like Lent. The problem is that these things just kind of pale in comparison to what Jesus was talking about, and they don't really necessarily fulfill the call to deny yourself. That's not to say, though, that they're worthless or useless, and we'll come back to that a little bit later on. So what does it mean? What does it mean for those of us who aren't literally walking around with Jesus, following in his literal footsteps in first century Palestine? Well, even when the specifics or circumstances are different, we can look at underlying attitudes and motives. And it begins, it begins by recognizing that we have desires, even desires that seem innocent, even very good or very appealing desires that are not good for us, especially that are not good for us long term. This is something so basic to what it means to be a disciple of Christ, and yet it is so countercultural to the message we hear from our surrounding world. And this is increasingly so. Our culture tells us that if something feels offensive to you, then you must be right, and the other person must be wrong. And moreover, they're probably oppressing you if they disagree with you, and especially if they tell you that maybe you need to change something. 
Our culture tells us that if something feels right, then it is right for you to do, no matter what other results or consequences they might be. Because to not do something that feels right for you, well, that would just be inauthentic, and you wouldn't want to be inauthentic. To deny yourself, on the other hand, though, is to take yourself out of the position where you are the sole arbiter of right and wrong, even right and wrong for you personally, and to accept that you simply cannot make that call. You don't know enough about yourself. You don't know about enough about how the world works to decide what is right and wrong for you. We're such a mixed bag of conflicting emotions and motives and temptations. We can't. And to take it to an even deeper level, we, we just don't even know what we don't know. We're often blind to the areas where sin is lurking in our lives. We don't even see it. And so we just keep on making selfish or unwholesome choices for unwholesome reasons. And so we need to deny ourselves. That is, we need to humble ourselves. We need to admit that our natural inclinations, that what comes naturally to us, what feels right and good to us, may not be what God wants us to do. Maybe in contradiction to what God wants us to do. And they may be harmful toward those around us, toward our neighbor. In other words, our natural inclinations may be the opposite of the greatest commandments to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have to admit that we just don't know enough about ourselves to rule ourselves well. And instead, we must give that right and that responsibility to the Lord Jesus, who is actually able to do so. Now, already by the time of the Apostle Paul, he recognized that not all Christians were literally going to be called to follow Jesus to execution by crucifixion, to literally die for the cause of Christ. And it seems that as you read the writings of Paul, he recognized that there was a call, though, still, to what it would mean to lay down your life. And that the Lord did want us to do some things in the meantime, even if literally laying down our lives would happen at some point. And so he wrote things like this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Or just a few pages over, Galatians 5.24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Or this one, a little closer to the sermon series title. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans 8.13 Or, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Colossians 3, verse 5. So I think there are two things we can draw from those passages those passages that will help us to understand how to apply Jesus' call to our lives. If it's not going to be literally being put to death, what does it mean then? It might not be a call to be literally put to death, but it is a call for the putting to death of sin and selfishness and, and stubbornly clinging on to the desire to be our own rulers 
and to give that over to Christ instead. Secondly, it is a call to be an active participant in the process of the putting to death of sin and the sinful desires that we have. Look at, the, look at those last two verses. But if by the Spirit you put to death, and even the last one, just put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Imperative. Do this. It's a command or an exhortation. So let's begin to wrap this up. As I said earlier, most of the commentators on this passage in Matthew are right to point out that this is a really hard saying of Jesus, maybe even an extreme one. And some of them are going to be quick to point out that denying yourself and taking up your cross isn't just giving up your morning coffee for Lent. It isn't about putting up with your roommate who doesn't keep things tidy. But here's the thing. Psychologists, as I said, have been running and rerunning the marshmallow experiment for decades now. And in any case, whatever might be said about that, and there's a lot to be said, and I'm no expert, but it seems that there is some correlation in having self-control in basic and small things, such as not eating a marshmallow when initially presented with it, or not just checking your Facebook every time you're bored, Whatever the case might be, if you have self-control in small things, self-control in bigger things will come eventually. Self-control in small things helps build self-control in important matters later on in life. So let's look at it this way. Maybe there's a few of you out there who are athletes. Just to simplify this, I'm going to start by, by talking about running. Unless you are crazy... You don't start, if you've never done much running before, by just signing up to run a marathon because that might kill you. <laughs> Happened to the first guy that did it in ancient Greece. Let's, let's not forget that. You don't start by running a marathon. You start small. You start with a one kilometer or whatever you can do and you work your way up from there. A 1K and then maybe a 2 or a 5 and then a 10. And then eventually maybe you decide, okay, I'm going to go full marathon. Or maybe, you know, and then maybe you get even to even Ironmans or triathlons or whatever. You don't just start with the hardest possible thing. There are many, many small things that go into competing at a high level in athletics. And many of them involve choices to say no to things that you might actually kind of like in the moment. And they might seem like, I don't want to say no to this. And it doesn't feel natural. And it would seem natural, I want to say yes to this cake or this bag of chips or whatever. I would rather say no to getting up early and I would rather say yes to sleeping in or to staying out late. But for the sake of being able to win a championship, you forsake those things. You sacrifice those things that might be fun with an eye on the greater good of actually being able to play at a high level and hopefully win. So you make choices in terms of what you eat, when you sleep, when you get up to spend time on the weights, stretching, Honing your accuracy through drills in, in shooting or passing or serving or whatever is relevant to the sport you're playing. 
The hard skills. And then there's soft skills that you've got to cultivate, right? You know, the communication with other people on your team and and the teachable spirit before your coach so that you can actually get better. Sometimes in a season of intense training, you even have to take that up to another level for a season when you have an important championship on the line. Or think of people that go to compete at high-level events like the Olympics, they, they might keep up a training regimen that would be unsustainable over a lifetime, but for the year before going to the Olympics, they're training with everything they've got. We understand this in the area of competing in sports or, or proficiency in any field, academics, music, whatever, whatever it is you're into, you realize that you need to be dedicated and that the small choices you make eventually add up to success or failure, and that you have to say yes to things you'd rather not and no to things that you'd rather not. And I think the spiritual life is, is no different. We aren't going to become saints, at least in, in the practice of being saints, if you will, overnight. We're not just going to have it all together by next Tuesday and, well, I don't sin anymore and I've got this all together. You're going to have to take some baby steps to get there. We might have to work hard to develop some self-control in small matters so that when true and serious temptation comes along, maybe we've built a little bit of self-control so we can actually reject that temptation and put it aside. Right? That's, that's a biblical principle. Jesus taught that if you are faithful in small things, then he will entrust you with the greater things. And being faithful in small things sometimes means some intentional self-discipline and self-denial even. Giving up coffee or Facebook or whatever other small sacrifices we might make in a season like Lent, those aren't the things. Those aren't the real actual carrying of our cross but they might be growing some self-control through small steps so that we've got some when it actually does come to something important. might not be the actual carrying of your cross, but those small steps might build some muscle so that you actually can carry your cross when something serious comes along and you're called upon to do so. Here's one last point of, of application from that sports metaphor. You've probably known if you've been around this, this sort of thing for a season, you've probably known that person that's actually really good at being self-disciplined, at eating right, at always being the first one at practice. But there's sometimes that guy or that girl, they do all these right things, but they do it for themselves. They want to do it to be the best. They do it for the sake of their, their batting average or their whatever personal stat you might want to put up there. That's what they're going for. They are, it's, it's all about their personal stats. It's all about them. How many goals, how many aces, whatever. They put in the time, but it's not really for the sake of the team. It's for them. And so if they have the right kind of team around them, they do well. But eventually it starts to wear on the team. It, does, it can't last forever. And they usually don't do well if the team goes through a difficult season because then it becomes really apparent what they're actually about. The same can happen to people who try to practice spiritual disciplines. And it often, unfortunately, has happened, right? People go off alone to, to practice these disciplines kind of for their own sake and for their own, I'm, it's just me and God off here in a cave somewhere doing the things. 
and, and you start to wonder, well, what good does that actually do the church and the world? Now, there is a certain truth in this. We may need to step aside and step away in order to get some priorities right in our lives and, and to hear from God, allow Him to speak to us in, in a withdrawn place, a quiet place, to clear some clutter out of our lives and allow him to speak to us. But whatever steps we need to take, the, the answer to those prayers, the results to the, those, discipline, those disciplines that we practice, it's not primarily for ourselves. Right? We're not trying to be that super athlete who just hogs the spotlight in a spiritual sense. We're trying to be somebody who is there for our team, for our local congregation, for our families, for our community. For our team, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and for our neighbors. You know, I think I think that attitude, more than anything else, might be what makes a Pharisee. Being a Pharisee, it's not necessarily that you're a Pharisee because you take the life of faith seriously, because you practice self-discipline in your faith, because you put effort into your faith and your walk with God. I mean, maybe that develops into Phariseeism eventually, but I think pursuing holiness for your own sake above the sake of others is primarily what makes you a Pharisee because that's what leads you to compare yourself to others and put others down and draw attention to yourself all the time. We began this school year with with a season looking, our series looking at what it means to be the family of faith. And we looked at the book of Ephesians. Our most recent sermon series had to do with being the kind of church that Jesus is calling us to be. And we looked at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, and particularly Jesus' letters to the seven churches and what he had to say and how he evaluated them. And this series, I hope we can continue that theme by looking at how we can practice different spiritual disciplines, how we can uh, practice self-denial and discipline ourselves, not for the sake of puffing ourselves up, but for the sake of being more attentive to what God has for us, being more aware of how we can serve one another and serve our neighbor. So we'll look at things like stewardship and solitude and prayer, not just to benefit ourselves, but how these things can be a benefit and a blessing to others in our congregation, in our community, in our dorms, in our families, even even our neighbors outside the church. So we'll conclude with the invitation to think about are there some things in your life that you need to deal with some areas where you're cherishing something that maybe you should put in the fire maybe there's some wrong things that you just need to deal with and you keep you keep putting it off and you keep putting it off maybe there's some things that aren't wrong maybe they're even okay things in and of themselves but you're you're relating to them and cherishing them in the wrong way with the wrong sort of intensity and they're, they're holding you back from what it is that God might have to you for you. But that's how, that's how sacrifice works. Being willing to forsake something that you find quite valuable now in order to make space, in order for God to be able to give you something that's better later in the future or even in eternity. And one final thought I want to leave us with on this notion of sacrifice We often know and can tell in ourselves or even in others what we value most, not by what we say we value most. That's easy. We see what we value most by what 
we're willing to sacrifice or not, and what we're willing to sacrifice for or not. That's something, that's a test that really puts things in perspective and shows us what it is that's most important in our lives. Now, thankfully, whatever sacrifices we're called upon to make, as I said earlier, they're sacrifices of obedience, not sacrifices of salvation. Jesus has already done that for us. Praise the Lord. And he left us a tangible reminder in the form of the Lord's Supper, which we can celebrate together as his people. And so when we do that, this is an act wherein we can, we can claim God's grace to live the kind of lives that are holy and pleasing to him, that he's calling us to live. And as we partake in this, we have a reminder that whatever sacrifices we're called upon to make in the here and now, that there is something far, far better in eternity waiting for us. This is such a beautiful way that we look back at what Jesus has done for us and we look ahead to what is ours in eternity, when we will enjoy the fullness of this meal with him in his eternal kingdom. So I would invite those who are going to be assisting in serving and our worship team to come on down. Take a few moments and prepare your hearts. And we'll prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together.